we started seeing and we started learning and it started getting better and now after 20 years it is so fascinating because now we're learning mm. I mean I feel like maybe just this year I think farmer gets all the credit for it but we can't fly roads yeah we have to fly over the mountains because that's where all the lift is and mm -hmm. and holy shit if if we're just learning this now in 20 years imagine what we can learn in the next 10 20 years it's it's magnificent some funny words there from Nate Scales. Uh, he was in the last episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem podcast. If you want to laugh hysterically, I encourage you to get the rest of that one. Go back and check that out. It's a fantastic podcast. He's just got so much wisdom and great stories. And we talk about the 2007 X Alps and a whole bunch of other stuff. I think you'll really like that. Uh, this week, we've got kind of an in-between cast. I was down in New Mexico a couple weeks ago with Ben Abruzzo, my trainer, and very very good friend uh, who trained me for the the uh, X Alps this year, as well as uh, was kind of my mountain goat during the race. So he was in charge of basically my ground game over there uh, with Bruce, and it was just we just had the most phenomenal time. And we've had so many questions uh, over the last few weeks since the since the race about how we got ready for it. So we thought we'd shed some light on all of that. If you're not interested in the X Alps or not interested in physical training, this is certainly an episode you could pass up on, but um, it was super fun sitting down with Ben. We were in his backyard, so there's all kinds of insects and bugs and dogs and airplanes flying over, but we, we thought it sounded really cool, so we stuck with it. Um, I think you're going to really enjoy this. Uh, we go super deep into all the training that was that was involved. Um, you know, I basically hit the pedal October 1st last year, about a year ago. Uh, so we had a little over nine months to prepare for the race. Uh, as he likes to say, I've got a cartilage wasteland in my knees. And so it was pretty interesting to see how he got me to a place where I could do, you know, 100K on the ground day after day. But uh, he got me exactly where I needed to be. And how he did it, I think, is really cool cool so i think you're gonna enjoy this ben's an awesome personality uh you can find him on online on uh, the snowgoat.com and uh without further ado ben abruzzo Alps the hardest race on earth. There's a lot of hard races on earth and Ben's done a ton of them himself, which he'll talk about, but um, to give you some perspective, uh, the end numbers after the X Alps uh, were pretty preposterous. I think I flew 1,560 kilometers, uh, walked 498, and uh, scaled, uh, uh, 52,000 meters of vertical in 10 days. So think Everest five times. Um, why I say that's preposterous is because I have no cartilage in my knees. I'm a, as, as Ben calls it, my knees are a cartilage wasteland uh, from years of ski racing when I was young. I'm like a middle-aged white guy, 43 years old, and uh, when I got really excited about doing this race, I realized that was going to be my major weakness. And you know, I've never run a marathon. I've never done any kind of endurance racing at all. So, uh, but I really like the thought of participating in this just wild and crazy event. So. Anyway, luckily, I knew Ben was an animal, and 
trained people, uh, Olympians and all kinds of badasses to do really hard things. And he'd done a number of hard things. So I'm going to interview my trainer and very good friend, uh, Ben Abruzzo. You're hearing a lot of noise in the background. We're in Ben's backyard. We're having a little bit of bourbon, enjoying the evening. And there's crickets and insects and dogs and all kinds of stuff. So forgive us for the background noise, but we thought it sounded pretty cool. Hey, dude. Hey, man. How you doing? Great. Thanks for having me in your home. I'm uh, thrilled to have you here. It's uh, it's been fun, adventure of sorts. So you and I were uh, skiing with your dad up in northern uh, BC, like almost two years ago now, right? Yeah, it, was, it, was it wasn't two last years. year's trip. It was the trip before that. Um, and I said that I really wanted to. Well, I was kind of like, I think I should maybe. I think I'd like to, it looks kind of cool, but I'm scared to death, um, do the X-Alps. And uh, your response, you knew I had really bad knees already. That's right, yep. Um, but your response was what I want to get into right away. You were like, yep, why? Did you feel like you could even <laughs> turn my turn my knees into something that, like I'd been living with pain for 20 years. Like sure. Pretty, pretty bad pain. You know, I... Uh, Part of it is just because uh, I think your adventure sounded cool and uh, I wanted to be part of it. Um, but uh, after I thought about it a little more, um, it seemed it seemed to me that it, that we could do this. That um, you know the there's so many people out there with problems like yours and they just don't go about it the right way. Um, you know, there's an amount of of uh, whatever medical condition, pain, destruction that you can't get past. Uh, but at the same time, we were there skiing, and I had seen you rip. So we knew you didn't have an instability problem. So it was like, well, how do we do this that you're comfortable so you can haul ass? Um, and how can you get through without exploding? Um, you know, if you had super unstable knees and you would had giant knee braces, I might have thought a little different about it. But... Um, you know, I'd spent a good portion of my life uh, training people to be fit and doing stupid stuff myself. And carrying heavy packs in the mountains is kind of one of the, the niches that I've um, done for myself and for others. And it just seemed like with your background and, and you know, I knew you were an animal and, and would try hard that uh, that we could pull this off. What do you what do you kind of look for in um in an athlete because you've trained a lot of athletes you've got some some heavy guns under your belt right now that you're training and um you owned for five years a crossfit gym yeah five years albuquerque yep crossfit albuquerque and you don't you don't own that anymore because you're 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 running ski areas and doing some other things and also you're doing more personal training like with me Um, yeah i um so i spent You know, we might get into my past later, but, um, you know, I spent a lot of time working with past military guys and and not in a paid way, just trying to find the way through fitness for myself and others. Um, I started geeking out on it a long time ago, and uh, then I got into CrossFit for a while and started a gym, and, um, you know, for five years, uh, I was a co-owner of CrossFit Albuquerque, and I was kind of the head coach and programmer where... Um, I put together, uh, you know, CrossFit programming for people who we sent a team to the games, the CrossFit games, they got third, um, multiple athletes going to a very high level. And at the same time, I started getting um, uh, folks in that wanted to go to pararescue school or special forces school, 
I had some elite marathoners that I trained and in that part of what I learned is I love training athletes and not necessarily the general public which is part of why I don't own the gym anymore mm-hmm. um, but I do love training athletes and so to, you know to answer your first question what I look for um, most of all is just commitment mm-hmm. um, I, I think people talk a lot and they say they want to be a badass and then you say okay here's the way and then they don't do it and a lot of times they give you excuses but it's really just because it's hard it's hard work um, one of the really cool things you and I have talked about it a lot but um, I re- I had never used I wouldn't say you know my ski racing days I ski raced for for a long time and I, you always have a coach that's right. a very integral you, you can't do it without a coach but um you know, I hadn't gone to a coach, someone like yourself, in 25 years since that ski racing was done. And one of the things that I was um, so overwhelmed by in the process, which we'll talk process, but was that I kept thinking right off the bat, like, I don't think I could do this. I know I couldn't do this on my own. I think people have a tendency, depending on their personality, is they either overtrain or undertrain. Totally. But they don't train the right way. And for me it was just having the accountability to you uh for those of you who are listening the way we would do it because ben lives in albuquerque i live in sun valley and then and i traveled a lot last year in the in the run-up to the games to the x alps because i i wanted to also fly in other places and sun valley is not a great place to fly in the winter so i had to get hours in the sky as well so ben would put my program on we called it the the X Alps domination. Uh, it's like a Google Docs, and he would put on every week, every Sunday. He'd put on the next week from Monday on. Um, typically, Monday was a rest day, so that kind of worked pretty well. But it was, and I would just follow it, and then I would put in the results every day, and then also everything I ate, and uh, and then we tracked everything with the Sunto watch, the the Ambit three, and put everything up in moves count, so he could track all the metrics, which was really interesting. It's, time went Super on. That was, that was incredibly valuable. But um, you wrote up in your blog about the training that we did that, you know, one of the really cool things about training, about the training we had was that I never questioned anything you ever did. I was just did it. And I'm not patting myself on the back. Sure. The, the beautiful thing of that was that when you have a trainer, when you have somebody that knows a lot more about it than you do, I just would have felt like if I was doing it on my own, I would have always felt like I wasn't doing enough and it wasn't the right thing. Even if I, and I would probably would have done too much. I was surprised how much rest there was and I was surprised how much time there was for recovery. And yeah, I mean, there's so much there in what you just said, because, you know, I was talking to one of my other athletes and um, someone asked her to, you know, asked her like, what are the qualities of a good coach? Um, And, you know, she gave various answers, but, I think it was like five qualities. One of the qualities was trust. And I think because we had a personal relationship, I trusted you. um, And you don't have to have a personal relationship with a coach, but I trusted you because I knew you, that you would do the work. And that sounds dumb to people, I think, sometimes, because they're like, well, what do you care? Well, like, I care because I'm putting the effort in, and I wanted you to put the effort in. And, uh, And then you trusted me not to tell you to do something stupid um so that i think that was kind of like the key cornerstone that 
I don't really think about a lot, but I think was super important. Um, and then as far as like how to do, what to do, when to do, I mean, it, you know, there's the, like you said, do the wrong things. That's just the knowledge part. That's, um, you're here to help me fly right now because I don't know a microscopic teaspoon of what you know about being in the air. So you go find people to help you fly or you're going to crash and bad things are going to happen. And fitness should be like that. I think sometimes it's not. Um, you know, you can pick up men's health or any other awesome piece of crap and on the internet and um, make yourself smarter theoretically. But there are a lot of people out there that are geeking out and learning stuff and, and testing stuff. I mean, that's a big thing is... I've been trying stuff out on myself and a lot of other people for a long time, so you learn things. But then the biggest part is exactly what you said, which is you, you just never get it right for yourself. Um, even when I am doing a big event, I tend to actually get other coaches do my programming because I know I'll make it too hard. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of you know not type a fairly loose people might make it too easy but you would have just killed yourself i mean that that was guaranteed that you were just going to murder yourself and recovery is actually when you get fitter i mean you do the work it destroys you but the rest time is when the muscles grow and your body relaxes and it, it adapts and it's just too hard to do for yourself i've tried it and i always screw it up and pretty much everyone i know screws it up because you just make it too hard so tell me about when you we started October first really right. officially. Yep. So we had a little over nine months, like nine months and five days to to get me where I needed to be. Um, at the time, walking five k without a pack was actually we started off at about that five to ten k, yeah. like some pretty easy days. Yep. And my knees hurt, and I was really scared. Remember, I was like, "Dude, I don't I don't know about this." And we that was kind of our thing. We were like, "Let's give this a month and see how the knees feel." By the end of that month, I didn't have any pain. I never did. Right. The rest of the time, all the way through the race, never had any pain. So, um, but did you, before we started October 1st, before my first week that went yep. on the domination, you know, Google Docs, was there a lot of thought that went in, you know, or, or is this just automatic for you? Like, did you kind of know? Because from my perspective, you know, a month and a half, two months in, I was like, where in the fuck do you come up with this stuff? I right. read these things. Like, I was down in Australia, we're talking about that, but I, you know, hypoxic swimming and burpees at the end of the laps and like like weird stuff you know like uh, I, I could you know a lot of it obviously came from some of your crossfit background sure but we didn't do that much crossfit no, we didn't. it was it was like but you it seemed to me i mean one of the one of the one of the reasons that i never had to question you is because it seemed like right from the beginning i could tell you had your eye on the long ball you you had your eye on this long game even though you, you were always talking about, okay, what this month is going to look like is hell, and the next month is going to be hell. More hell. And more hell, and we're good, but we need to create this base so you can handle a lot more hell. And right. so, um, but did you have, you, have you just done it enough that you knew, or was this a totally different exercise? Was this a completely different kind of So you were absolutely game? unique situation um, based on two things. One was the state of your your knees that we've talked about and two was the duration i mean uh and the type of exercise because you know a 100 mile foot race is really long but it's not 1600 kilometers i mean it, it although it's done differently it's at a high heart rate instantly um and what we were doing was a little different so those were 
So you are definitely a unique situation. In the vertical game, you know, I, I train a lot of guys to go uphill fast, but not for 10 days in a row. Um, so that being said, I think the methods that I was going to use on a kind of micro level were those are the ones I just keep in my head from having done this for so long. Um, and then what I do, what I did for you and I, I do for all athletes is I, I write out a long range training calendar, which is basically I, you go backwards, you start at the race and you go back to your start point and you say, here's how many days. Um, we know we have a taper. We know that we want to hit these goals at these times and just kind of work backwards. And that kind of gets you started. And then of course you adjust as you go. Um, you know, I, I wrote that the first little bit, a lot of it was kind of like, it was like a buy-in. It was like, we're going to put you through, uh, two or three months of work that is not super specific. It's going to allow you to do the work that's going to matter later. Mm -hmm. Um, so you were kind of earning the right to actually train, if that makes any sense. And it mm -hmm. didn't feel like it, but I think people shortcut that a lot and mm -hmm. they like, okay, I'm ready to go. Let's go now. And then they implode because their body's not actually ready for what needed to be done, which is why you're doing 10K walks. And later, you know, 10K was, you know, an hour and you weren't even warmed up yet. You still had four more hours to go. Mm -hmm. And it was just kind of buy-in. Um, but that was built all off the long-range training calendar. And, again, just you. We, we wanted to suss out, okay, what are you good at? What are you not good at? Um, what's working, what's not. Because, you know, s some of it I definitely uh, changed as we went through from what I'd maybe originally planned as we kind of saw how your fitness got better um, or worse or not worse, but um, how it didn't adapt the way I wanted it to. So then you change the training. Um, but uh, definitely a plan to start with. I think that's super key. Mm -hmm. And you... It seemed to me, and I've gone back and looked at, at our Google Docs a lot of times, and I, I can't specifically pick it out there. There was always a big email every Sunday night that talked about that week, and it was typically three weeks, first week's less hard, second week's more hard, third week's the hardest, fourth week's kind of recovery, yep. and then bam, we're back into the new thing. But in general, there seemed to be, to me, like trimester. There was three three-month blocks that were really focused on different things. And you've talked about that being a little bit backwards of how you're often training for, because this this was a unique race in that there was a lot of strength yep. involved because we're carrying the pack and there's a lot of endurance involved. Um, but there was, you know, like the beginning, like you're talking about was kind of building the base, like the first three months was like building the base for the hell that was to come. And then there was a huge aerobic period that was, you know, just hours on the treadmill and hours on the rower and hours. I mean, I became like famous in town for the dude walking in tights, just walking down the road, just right. six hours on the road. You know, like you said, it went from 10K to, well, we were often doing 50, 60K on the ground. Um, but what was your, talk about that methodology The you know, is, is that even right? No, it yeah. seemed like it was like each, it, it, each three it, months was kind of its own thing. Totally. And it, and it is a little backwards. So in, you know, classic endurance programming, uh, you, so we called your first three months the base, but it, it's not what most people would refer to as the base. Most people refer to the base as your low heart rate, 
big long endurance training um and you do that kind of early in the season and then you work on your intensity and your speed the closer you get to your race uh for you what i called the base was because this was such an all-encompassing sport of you needed to go long uh you needed to toughen your feet you needed to be strong to support your pack and we'll talk about all that but i mean it was a it was everything so the base was just like i said buying in the ability to train hard later and we focused on strength a lot in the beginning because you know you you can't become an endurance beast and get really strong at the same time like your body just doesn't like doing that um so we wanted to while we were building your base and getting you your miles on the road a, we needed to start small because we needed to get, let your knees work into it. And B, the whole point was to make your 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 legs strong above and below the knee uh, so that you could take some of that stress off of your knee. Well, to do that, we had to do the first part. So we did the strength in the beginning while kind of breaking you into your the upcoming endurance. Um, but the big difference was we did your speed work, your, your intervals, before we did the big aerobic base. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that was because you're, we were just never going to have you run. Like that, that was not going to happen. There's no point. Uh, you're not going to win the X Alps running. Um, but we wanted to make you fast to go uphill if you need it, and we ended up needing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember yeah. a specific day, mm-hmm. um, right near the end. And uh, but it, you know, we knew you were going to be in Europe for for two months leading up to the race um, and I wanted your high mileage uh, heart rate all of that functioning smoothly and again you can't really train it all at the same time we did we put little pieces in you can always do reminders Um, but we did your big interval phase more in I think it was January right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and that was to kind of take your strength start priming your engine and set the stage for that your body remembering how to go fast and kind of my goal was we were going to make you really fast and then know that you were going to lose 20 percent of it but it was probably still going to be faster than everyone else while we got your aerobic engine going uh you know headed into the race mm-hmm. um so it was a little backwards but i i think it it was kind of the right way to go for as weird as this race is i'm going to jump ahead and maybe this isn't the right way to do it, but it, because it's fresh in my mind, um, I kind of got crushed. Like the only time in the whole time, yep. you know, it was like we we would do starting in January. We would do like race. Uh, what do you what would you call them? Like race emulations. Yeah, simulations. Janu- yep. Simulations where we would do like in January we did two days, in February we did three days, in March we did I think again three days, April we did four days, May we did five days, where it was like, okay, depending on you know in February obviously we got a lot of snow, so we're not gonna be flying a ton, but we would be like okay, up at five thirty, exercise, do stuff all day, go to bed at eleven thirty, you basically you know simulate what. The conditions of the race were in terms of sleep and in terms of physical output right um and those were always these just massive psychological boons for me because one it was a real gauge of where i was it's like holy shit i could go 12 hours a day i mean remember the one we had in april where it was do as many hike and flies as you can in a day i did like eight 
you know, massive amount of vertical. I can't even remember what it was that day. It was huge. It was huge. Yeah. And then, you know, and then it got too windy to fly. And I texted you and said, hey, what do I do now? And you said, okay, go to the gym and do a half an hour on the rower, a half an hour on the ski ERG, a half an hour on the bike, a half an hour on the treadmill, and then swim for half an hour. <laughs> you know, I was like, holy hell. And I got done with it and I felt great. Right. You know, and it was almost a 7,000 calorie day. That's a big day. Huge you know? day. Um, so, but then in May, the day started to get like, you know, we were talking about this taper in mm-hmm. June. The day started to get like, I was looking at it the other day, you know, there was like 4,000 meters yep. and then 20K. And then another day was like 50K with the pack and then, you know, some CrossFit type stuff. Like they were big days. Um, and I remember I, I emailed you at one point and just went like, dude, when does this taper happen? You right. know? But you had, the, again, your view on the long, and you just kept saying, trust me, you're going to, if you hurt now, or if you're like, remember the one, at one point in the winter, I was like, I, is it okay that I've been sore for 40 days straight? I'm like, <laughs> if you're sore now, that's okay. You won't be sore then. But I, I guess I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, you, the viewer or listener, I don't want to make this sound like it was hell. It actually wasn't. It was really fun the whole way throughout because there was never a time ever actually where I was like I can't do this right I'm fucked uh, like Ben I, I, I need you to I need to come crying your shoulder it was always like dude I actually I feel really good until like late May and I was like when is this backing off and I think some of that was psychological it totally. was like when is this fucking taper gonna happen um, but how tell me about tapers tell me about that process the end process and again like I'm jumping ahead but it was a fascinating time for me that yeah was, you know the and, and I'm going to back up just a hair. You know, part of what you said where it was like three weeks and then a deload week, which, which is my term for the – it's not a rest week because Gavin was still doing stuff, but it was significantly reduced volume, is about uh, training hard so your body is stressed and then it compensates and tries to get better. But you got to give it time to get better, and that was then the, the rest week. So the whole cycle, the whole whatever – we did six months. Nine months. Nine months was one never-ending push of compensation in the bigger picture towards the taper, which was then when your body was theoretically going to um, hit its ultimate peak and you'd be ready for the race. Um, and peaking's hard. There's all kinds of people way smarter than me that you know try and peak downhill ski racers. And, mm-hmm. Olympic weightlifters and and this one's a little easier because there's so many more variables we can be off by two percent it doesn't matter but um, part of it so then we were trying to make it you don't want to taper too early and you don't want to taper too long and tapers suck because when you're actually tapering almost universally every athlete's like they'll come to you and say I'm getting less fit I'm not sleeping good um, I hated it. Yeah, I mean, but everyone's like that. It's universal because your body is become like, like I, a, I'd have these like muscle twitches at night that would go for hours and hours and hours. Like I'd have them in my biceps, and yeah. I had my legs, and it's like, pretty uh, universal. Just like the taper sucks, so you can't make it too long, but you have to do it, or you even if you feel great, you're going into the race tired, and that's just stupid. Mm. So part of it, you being in Europe. Um, and and we had discussed that, okay, you're in Europe. What's the most important thing to do is fly the course. Mm-hmm. So I knew that everything I put on that sheet, if I got 70% of it done by you and 
to tell the audience, Gavin did a hundred percent of everything all the time. But when he got to Europe, that wasn't that wasn't intelligent because if he had five days of good weather, mm-hmm. we knew you'd be hiking. Uh, but you need to go fly. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of it was I put too much in there and assumed you wouldn't get it all done, and you didn't. Uh, but you got you got a lot done. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one part of it was the that you worked your ass off, um, and that's why you probably started to feel pretty bad. And uh, and the second thing was just like I said, I, I think that the the overall goal was to take you to the absolute limit as much as we could, and then let you go on the big coast down to the race. Well, and I think that was you know. Um I didn't want to make this not sound humble or overconfident, but it was really interesting being there the week before the race around everybody else. There was a lot of fear yes. in a lot of people. Yep. You know, a lot of those guys looked really scared, and uh, and and a lot of the guys that had been in the race before looked really scared. And I think that was something that was it's just a huge for my psychology, my head before the race because this long taper was in a really good place right. because um, I think that training for most of the athletes in the race was was pretty limited to hike and fly a lot of hike and fly but we had this incredible and we'd done so much else that I, I, I basically like I, I knew one thing that actually didn't end up coming true I knew I wasn't going to get blisters I was bragging about it to everybody because we had trained so much on concrete in so many different shoes and always wet feet and and I'd been over in Europe in the wet shitty weather in May and June and right. and, and, we'd, and I'd walked a lot and never had a blister so I knew I wasn't going to get blisters um, that didn't end up working out but uh, and, and I knew I could do it basically I knew I could walk 100k a day day after day if the, if the weather was just crap you know? right and that was amazing. Yeah. You, you know, when you look at the numbers, I think you posted on your blog, you, you know, by the time we got to the race, I'd done 2,000 kilometers and like 200,000 200, meters, meters of vertical. Of vertical. Yep. Was that in your head before you started or is that just how it ended up playing out? Um, kind of both. So when we first started, I had no real idea because I didn't know how you were actually going to um, respond to it mm-hmm. and then when we got to January it was kind of when I started putting in my mind and putting on paper like okay you know by um, May we need to be trying to do whatever 10,000 meters of vertical gain a week and we need to be trying to push 150 kilometers on the ground and then you kind of work backwards from that and so I didn't have a final number but that's just what I, I knew where we wanted you to get and we wanted to build there so then it got to that point yeah talk about the pack um, because that was that was really interesting to me the, um, the whole race I know you and Bruce are, would laugh at this when I say this but I, I didn't actually feel the pack the yeah. pack never bothered me ever you yep. know I would always I'd be kind of pissed off when you guys would push a big battery battery on me or something because I knew I was carrying more weight than everybody else you know I had a heavier wing I ended up changing to the ice peak right at the last second and I wasn't going with a lightweight wing so I, I knew I had two extra kgs and I just knew that was making me slower even though I didn't feel like it but it was but I knew I mean, it was yeah, totally. and so I would piss and moan but I actually didn't feel the pack the whole race it was always just like a joke you know um even in all the vertical you put a lot of time into that that's not something i would have anticipated you know because i think of like a nine kg pack as a joke you know but you really put a lot of time into strength yeah you know i um 
uh, kind of my start in the fitness world was I was a young infantry guy in the army and what you do is you carry packs a lot and um, I was a 150 pound 22 year old kid who'd never lifted weights and uh, I could run really far and I was fit by that definition and um, I remember my company commander was a 240 pound ex West Point football player and I he couldn't finish a five mile run but we went on a foot march and he would destroy me and everybody else hmm. um, and a foot march like 30 miles with 60 pound packs at 13 and a half minutes a mile which if you've ever carried a pack is almost running yeah. um, and part of what I took from that was you gotta have a frame uh, and the, it, it, you don't need to be 240 pounds but you gotta have some some meat and some mass that's functional to, to carry your load. Um, and then fast forward 10 years of death racing and training PJs and various people, you, I just kind of started to figure out that you, you know, the, the aerobic fitness part is super important. Um, there's no doubt, but you got to be able to move a load. And even if it's only nine kgs and i think yours i mean with your water and everything else oh, yeah. it is more than that yeah, um, yeah and go do that for 60 kilometers and tell me how you feel and most people if they haven't built a good frame and trained enough they're going to feel worse about the pack than anything else on their body i mean it it folds people over it, it changes their posture and then when they change their posture in their upper body it makes their their walking posture changed and then their hips hurt and then their knees hurt and and with your knee issues I just knew that like that couldn't happen you needed to have your normal walking posture whether it was 300 kilometers in or 10 kilometers in um, so kind of what we went about doing was trying to build a frame on your torso uh, and your legs but that was also part of the the knee strengthening that we talk about and just the ability to go uphill fast um, but we put a lot of effort into your torso, which was, you don't want weight for weight's sake. So I didn't want to make you heavy, and we had a lot of discussions mm -hmm. about trying to make sure you didn't bulk up too much. And and you're a kind of guy who can actually put on mass, I think, mm -hmm. pretty easily. Mm -hmm. um, but there was an amount that was worth having, um, because you, 10 pounds less than you are now, uh, I don't think would have liked carrying that pack as much. Right. Um, so we went about it kind of, you know, uh, classic in a lot of ways. Um, you know, like you said, we didn't do a lot of, quote, CrossFit. There weren't a lot of uh, your classic, you know, here's a workout and do it till you throw up kind of thing. Uh, we did a lot of sets with reps. You squatted a lot. Uh, you did a shit ton of pull-ups. We made dips your friend. And we just tried to get you freaking a strong. A lot of push-ups. And then our favorite move was the sandbag get-up. And mm -hmm. for those of you who've never tried it, go build a sandbag. And when you start, if you're a man, make a 50, 60-pound sandbag. And if you're a woman, 20 pounds less, lay on the ground, put it on your shoulder, um, and basically you get up with it. And there's some technique to it, but the simple thing is stand up and then get back on the ground. You do that for 10 minutes and or 20 minutes or however many minutes you decide to do it. Uh, you build a lot of durability and strength in your core and your midsection that that will help you carrying a heavy load. So, the uh, I, I think the sandbag, the, the get ups. I don't know how many thousands of those fucking things I did, but 
they, you know, the first thing I went, when I went to Europe, before I went, actually, you told me, you know, 20 pounder, 60 pounder, 100 pounder, yep. you know, have those three bags, bring the sandbags with you, fill them up with whatever you can find when you get over there. Because we didn't have a gym anymore. Right. You know, we were moving around. Um, but I think those more than anything else, well, you know, the kettlebell workout was pretty brutal too, but was was one of those things where you'd get done and you could see your body go, yeah, just, totally. just grow. Yeah. You know, it was incredible. It was, it's, of all the movements we did, that one seemed to be the most kind of just, it would just tighten me up and make me feel really strong. I always just felt like I was kind of like Hulk at the end of those things. Like I could just walk through a wall. Well, I think part of it's that psychological yeah. thing because they're uncomfortable if you've never done them because getting up and down off the ground is not generally fun. And then when you hang 60 pounds off your shoulder, they're just not comfortable. Mm -hmm. And they're freaking hard. You have to have a stiff core and it gets really tiring to stand up after a while. So, I mean, it, it is that kind of full range of motion beast mode I mean I don't know you do a hundred of those and it's like running through a wall I mean it, mm -hmm. it takes determination so mm -hmm. um, but it's really great for everything totally it's yeah. really good for any of course you get it in your core big time but so yeah the, the get ups um, tell me about the kettlebell workout so you know I went back and looked and, and in general you know you you had strength training on average twice a week mm -hmm. um, early in it was three times a week in general it was twice a week um, and if you took that many weeks times two uh, probably 80% of the workouts were all different but of the remaining 20% there were two workouts in particular that, that we repeated quite a bit and one was this nine station workout that you've talked about um, and uh for those familiar, I stole it from uh, John Wellborn of, of Power Athlete. Um, and the other workout... Wait a minute. we got to tell about the nine. The nine. Okay. So the nine-stage workout was it, it was just awesome. We did this every week for, for four weeks, sometime in the winter. Um, you, have, you have 80 seconds at, at each stage to complete two sets of 10, uh, basically, basically as heavy as you can do 10 reps. Without putting it down. Without putting it down. So, and it was squat. You'll have to help me out here, but it was, it was squats, bench press, uh, dips, pull ups, uh, no swing pull ups. You know, so what do you call it? The, the, your pull ups. Oh, no kipping pull ups, no strict kipping pull ups. Pull -ups. Strict pull ups. Yep. Kettlebells, and the kettlebells were like 75. Yep. Um, front squats. I can't remember. Lunges and push press. That's right. Yep. So it was nine. It was nine. So you have nine, nine stages, uh, or nine exercises, two sets of 10, 80 seconds to do it, which basically means with the leg stuff, with the hard, you know, the heavy stuff like the squats and the bench press, you basically do it, rack it, and start again. You just, yep. you're basically just putting it on the rack and stepping right back off. The dips and the pull ups, you could have a little bit more rest, but my RA would always go to my max totally. almost right off the bat and so it's you know it's a short workout but it's a hard it's a long workout with your heart rate that high it's the kind of thing where you feel like you're going to puke yes and and uh and you're you end up tossing around quite a bit of weight um but what was interesting for me was the first one was was I was just like okay Ben's actually trying to kill me this this sucks that bad and then but by the fourth week and you're increasing the weight every time yep um but by the fourth week it was like yeah I got this 
you know, and you're doing more more load with more load, and that was but that was a really cool one because it was just once a week, and but you could see this massive gain, you know, like a well, huge that, amount of, of weight gain, like just 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 volume, and uh, but God, it was hard. So anyway, I thought the listener would enjoy that. that. That was a really cool workout, and and that one was both for fitness and uh, strategically just for your brain right. because. I was, of course, guessing that you were going to get better. It would have sucked if you wouldn't have. But uh, <laughs> uh, I wanted you to, to, you know, part of the problem when we do these very varied workouts all the time is you get no feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so hard to get feedback when your workouts are always different. Um, so I wanted to give you something you could chew on and go, damn, I'm getting stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the kettlebell workout. Um, so Dan John is this longtime uh, Highlands game strength coach, very well-known kind of underground guy though and uh and he wrote this this 500 rep uh kettlebell swing workout and he wrote it for as a quick way you do this thing four times a week so you do 10,000 swings in a month um and the whole point was just to lose some body fat and look sexy and everything else i kind of took that and adapted it um for a couple reasons. One, if you've ever swung a kettlebell, uh, you swing it once, it's not that hard. You swing it 20 times, it gets hard. Um, when you start getting into hundreds of reps, a couple things happen. You gotta do it right, or bad things are gonna happen. It significantly tests your grip strength, which obviously has no direct bearing on the X-Alps, but there's a lot of correlation to people with strong grip are just actually stronger everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it freaking spikes your heart rate um and then the biggest thing was it was going to smoke your posterior chain which is your your ass and your hamstrings and your low back and those things are super important for the race um and the biggest reason i did it was it was just fucking evil and it was a mind fuck to to get it done and and you know a lot of what we did in the weight room was not that I, i wanted you just to do work and get out because your test was on the road but sometimes it was cool to have a little spike of, hey, this sucks ass, see what you can do, and all those other benefits. So um, uh, so he, Gavin did a – we did the 300, right? 300 and yeah. then 400. Yep. And um, so you do, a, you do a set of 10, you set it down, you kind of take a few breaths, you do a set of 15. No, you do pull-ups. Yep, I'm nope, getting there. No yep. breaths. I'm getting there. Okay. Yeah. You're right. No breaths. <laughs> Basic workout is there's there is uh, three sets of a hundred or four if you're doing four hundred and they're broken up into ten, fifteen, twenty five, and fifty. And in between those, you do another movement. Um, it could be pull ups. It could be goblet squats. It could be front squats. Um, that's where you're kind of taking care of the rest of your body. Um, and the goal is you swing your 10, you're right, you go into your pull-ups, then you swing your 15, then you do pull-ups. And the pull-ups or front squats are kind of lower rep. Uh, you're not doing 50s of them. Um, and by the time you hit the set of 50, you just look at that bell, because I've done this workout a lot, and you go, I can't do that. No. And then it's amazing. You start swinging it, and, and then about, there. and you get through it. Um, and then you get to set it down and take a little rest before you you hit the next hundred. But it's uh, 
if you've never done it, it's a pretty unique experience. That was another interesting one where there was this radical gain. Yeah. The first time with the 300, um, you wanted me to do it with the 53. I started with the 53. I think I made it two of the sets and right. then had to jump down to the 44, whatever the right. next one down is with the kettlebells. I always forget. The next week when I did it again, I did all of them with the 53. And then the next week, we bumped into 400, 400, and I yep. did all of them with the 53 or the 56, whatever yep. it was. And uh, I still would always look at it and go, I can't do that. But the first time, I actually couldn't. I yep. actually had to drop the weight because I couldn't hold on to it. Yep. It wasn't really so much. I think by that point, that was already February well, we March, were way so into We it, were yeah. way into it, and I was strong. But it was, but the grip strength, yeah. could hold on to it. Yeah. I think it's grip strength and then also just learning to basically – like you, you, you're like fuck you. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, totally. There's a lot of that going on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a lot of grunting on those days. Um, I went to Australia in December, and uh, so this was pretty early on. Yeah. It's funny when I go back and look at the training, I'd already had made some huge gains. Huge gains. It was yeah. pretty interesting. But went down to to fly with Bruce. Bruce was my supporter for listeners. He was kind of our strategist and flying logistics supporter and Ben was my mountain goat and he was kind of we kind of broke it up and you were my ground game. Yep. Bruce was the air game. Um, I went down to fly with Bruce for for 3 weeks. That was really interesting because we didn't have mountains uh, to train in except when we were up in bright, but for the most part we were in the flatlands, so we didn't have mountains to train in. It was wicked hot. Um, I had a pool you know, so you kind of, when I first got down there, you were kind of like, okay, well, what do you got? And then, okay, and here here you go, do this stuff. Um, you know, leg thrasher, peck trasher, you know, all these different... Leg blaster. Kind of leg blaster, yeah. That's right, yeah. Oh, God. Um, but you came up with all this different kind of stuff. But from a coaching perspective... Um, you didn't seem to battle very much with I traveled a lot last yeah. year. That was always kinda like it always seemed like it was no big deal. Like in the in the you know, I remember doing like burpees and and uh you know, all these funny movements in hotel rooms and walking around you the ice like your in Montana. Suitcase at one point. Yeah, yeah. I'm using my suitcase a lot and stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, finding rocks and sand and filling backpacks and that kind of thing. But um like in, in Australia, I did all this swimming. Like, how do you know how to do all I, I just kept, Bruce and I kept laughing because the whole time I was down there, like, what the hell? Look at this one. A lot of walking backwards, for example. Like, how did, how did you come up? Is that just your experience? Yeah, I mean, it's really just the experience. You know, the walking backwards, uh, God, I went to a Rolfer like 10 years ago. And um, for those of you who've never been Rolfed, try it. It's amazing. Awesome. Um, and you know his his uh, I went there because I was a bit fucked up and um, he's like, "Are you a runner?" And I said, "Yeah." And I just run a fifty mile race and he said, "You need to start walking backwards." And um, and he was talking about imbalances. You know, you're always moving forward. And I guess if you walk to your office and sit down, that's all you do. It's no big deal. But go run, you know, hundred miles a week, and it's a lot of forward movement. And he said, "Try walking backwards." And I really felt it made a huge difference in just kind of, um, just kind of resetting me, I guess. And, mm-hmm. uh, so that's where I got that from. And you know, the other stuff, same thing. Experience. You know, I trained. Uh, I've trained a bunch of PJ um, guys trying to go to PJ Indoc, which. Um, and Tell, what is that? So, pararescuemen is is okay. the special forces of uh, the Air Force, um, and there's a huge swim component because 
part of their thing is to jump out of the helicopter in the water. Uh, and I've also trained a bunch of SEALs who most listeners know who they are, um, who are going to BUDS, or wannabe SEALs, I guess I should say. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm not a swimmer. Uh, I've trained triathletes, and, and then these guys, and you just, I spent a lot of years kind of dicking around trying to figure out what worked, and um, so that's where you kind of start learning some of this stuff. You know, the hypoxic swims, and basically there it's a, you know, the theory is you swim the first lap and I can't remember, you can take a breath every stroke every and then the second lap you can take a breath every, every two, two stroke. strokes and so forth until you blow up. And um, it's kind of a version of uh, Mark Twight wrote some kettlebell breathing ladders. I don't know if we ever did those. Um, yeah. And uh, it, it's, it's about overcoming panic more than actually a physio- physiological adaptation hmm. um, because we can all get into panic breathing and that can seriously fuck you up. And for what you were going to do, it seemed appropriate. Um, you know, if you could have a just completely shit fucking death spiral, you know, land in a snowmaking pond at 60 <laughs> mile an hour down, and then might have to do something, you know, if you'd experience the ability to basically go into panic, control your breathing, and do what you need to do. Um, and for you, it was probably always going to be a little easy based on your water background. I imagine you had some terrifying experiences in the water. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was part of it, um, mm-hmm. trying to find something interesting for you to do. And then uh, just kind of push that anaerobic threshold because we were in kind of the interval stage then. Um, and basically see what you could do at a lack of oxygen. Um, and that would bring benefits going hauling ass uphill at altitude. Mm-hmm. where you're losing oxygen because you're going really fast up and there isn't any oxygen to have anyways because you're 4,000 meters. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's not like groundbreaking scientific. We weren't measuring your blood. It was just a, a history of doing things with folks and going, that worked and we saw some good benefit out of it and this didn't work and I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, so that's kind of where I came up with that. And then the travel part, you know, I... People, I don't. People make excuses a lot, and athletes make excuses, and coaches make excuses. Coaches are worse. Um, you know, if you're not in their gym and their environment, looking at their weights, it becomes hard for them to to contemplate what to do. And um, you know, training mountain athletes and training military athletes, you you can't have those limitations. So I kind of just a long time ago learned to just be like we're gonna make shit up like there shouldn't be an excuse mm-hmm. you're in a hotel room fine use some luggage mm-hmm. do a thousand push-ups maybe it's not the perfect sport specific thing to do that day mm-hmm. but it's good you're moving you're yeah you're moving exactly yeah um, tell me about the uh well i i, I just have, I have to emphasize that to for me um the variability of the whole thing all the way through was really incredible because it it didn't, you know, I, I typically wouldn't look at the next day until the night before. Which is wise. And, yeah, and cool. uh, you know, but it was never, it was always just like, oh my God, this is, it's, you know, there was very little repetition, almost yep. none. Um, and, 
you know, in the aerobic stage, there was a lot of just boring stuff that we just had to do. There was a lot of walking. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a lot of, and I went up the hill behind my house a thousand times, you know, so I got to know the route pretty well. But we always did that kind of differently. We'd either do it in intervals or really fast or pretty mellow. Anyway, there was uh, the, the variability, I think, is, is another thing you get from coaching. Yeah, yeah. Where it's just you, you have a real knack for keeping it fun. So thanks for that, but that that was I think part of what what made it really engrossing and uh, kind of helped me be all in all the time was that it was fun. It's actually really fun. And if it sucks, who wants to do it? Right. For one, th- I mean, it sucks. Like you said, if it's snowing and you're walking sixty k, you could say that sucks. But if it's just boring all the time, I don't know. You got to be a really hard person to. Mm to do that so you want to make it interesting um i also think this sport lends itself to that because there was just so we just didn't know what the hell was going to happen so like i knew all the bases i wanted to cover but it let me be pretty freeform on how to get there in the kind of micro sense the daily workout sense you know like let's make this one interesting because because we can, because every day in the X Alps was not going to be what we thought it was, and sure enough, it's exactly how it was. I mean, mm-hmm. they were all different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it really, all we had to go f- with was was John Chambers' book, right? You know, I mean, we'd seen the videos and everything else, but it, you know, in there somewhere, he re- he commented that his average was sixty k a day. Yep. And uh, and he did Everest four times. You know, I did it five or whatever. But he did, I think, one hundred twenty thousand feet of vertical. Um, and so that was kind of what we were, more or less. Yeah, kind of that was our kind of end, end result. Exactly, we were be able to do sixty k a day, day after day, and we we're be able to climb Everest four times. Yeah, and that and that brings up a good point too. You know, I, I don't want anyone listening to this to think that at the end of the day we were focused on your sport, and yeah. it, it doesn't matter how many kettlebell swings you can do, it doesn't matter what your back squat is, doesn't even matter what your sixty k walking time is it's are you going to do well in the x helps or not um you know your performance in europe was all that mattered and i think we did a nice job of using everything as a tool and never getting fixated on a particular day and you as an athlete did a nice job of that too you were like i feel stronger i feel better i had a good day i had a shitty day you had shitty days too we all do mm-hmm. but the whole point was just to be better at the x helps and um a lot of people when they get into high volume training get fixated on the training mm-hmm. and forget there's actually a sport at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I think that was another way to say what you're just saying is you know there was there was always more emphasis on don't miss a flying day ever. Yeah, you totally. Know that, no, you know even if Tuesday was supposed to be one of these massive days and I had you know we had good weather we'd always switch those days yep. always it was always put the flying first and that was um you know what we learned even more so we knew this going into it what we really learned in this race is the best pilot wins you know yet again kriegel won it's not because he's the fastest on the ground it's because he's the best pilot you know? yeah and i and you were very uh, you knew up front i remember you telling me you're like you know if i do well in this race it's because i'm gonna fly well um but you were like but it could rain. I still got to hike a lot, and I need to be fit. And that was always kind of our thought was let's – and I think it actually – I mean you became 
someone in the X Alps is going to hate me for saying this, but I think you were the fittest dude out there, period. Um, but we just needed to make you fit enough, which we did, mm-hmm. so that your fitness wasn't a distraction for your flying. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you flew really well and, you know, first American to the raft. And I, I think we did a good job of remembering that. Um, and just kind of throughout the thing, it was just. Like I said, everything was about let's make you good at the X Alps. So, you know, we would do X meters when we wanted you to go X fast. And, you know, you remember you and I talked a lot. We had we had pace goals for Gavin walking on the ground and going uphill. But at the end of the day, if he could hike a mountain and feel good and then fly his wing off of it, which he did a lot of, um, and then do it again and feel good and do it again, Nobody actually cared what the time was. You mm-hmm. just cared that you just did 12,000 meters of vertical gain and 20K on the ground and flew and felt good. Mm-hmm. That was the goal, mm-hmm. you know, because that's, that's what the race is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you're, you've made a comment many times about other athletes that you've trained. You don't – there's no need to make them better. What's your quote for you only need them good enough? Yeah, totally. I mean it's all about economy. You – you, you just need to be good enough to be good enough at your sport. And good enough is winning in theory. But, you know, if all you needed to do was be, as as an example, if a 225-pound back squat equaled good enough, and we didn't use numbers, like I didn't care what his numbers were, then that's good enough. Why would we spend time and effort chasing fictitious numbers like, Gavin, I want you to have a 300-pound back squat. Well, who who cares? Right. I just want you to be good enough. And good enough for you was, do your knees feel good? Are you hitting some reasonable paces on the ground? Uh, can you go uphill fast? And then the next day, do you feel brand new? Those mm-hmm. were kind of our like mm-hmm. standard metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll, I'll just jump into the, you know, for the, for the listener, to give you a, a, we posted all this stuff during the race and we were trying to do blogs and stuff. Red Bull's phone completely sucked. So the blog system was kind of a failure, uh, which was unfortunate. So some of them never made it up, but, um, the, to kind of recap the race, uh, things went really, really well for us. Uh, right off the bat, had a couple of really bad days. Uh, pulled one of my first night passes. I think night three, um, walked all night. My feet really went to hell. Um, actually, day two, really early on, yeah. I was with I was with Aaron Gerigotti. I think he and I were we were together most of the day, um, and got lost uh, and hiked up this horrendous hill and, and it just trashed both of our feet. We both got really dehydrated. We were we were in bad shape, but. Um, because we got lost, took the wrong trail, and then it was wicked hot in the race. We had this huge uh, heat wave hit Europe a few days before the race started, and it kind of hung in there through about the third day of the race, so it was really hot on the ground and very humid. Um, And both Aaron and I's and quite a few other athletes' feet went to absolute hell. Uh, Bad days, and then we had an amazing day, day eight, uh, after a very hard day, day seven, and I just pulled the pin on the whole thing, and we rested. And then Ben and I went up to a really high launch above Bellinzona and had a massive day. Got back into seventh and had seventh pretty much wrapped up uh, until the end of the race. And then I I had a terrifying flight and really shouldn't even be here talking to Ben. Uh, It was amazing that I lived through that one. And anyway, that's all on the the website. But because this is a fitness thing, um, the last 
we pulled the other night pass that I had to use, the second one, um, the last night to try to catch Ferdinand Van Chelvin, who had overtaken me that day and moved into seventh, so I was in eighth. Um, that was kind of, that wasn't going to happen. He was too far ahead anyway, but I tried. Yep. <laughs> and I went really hard that night, and my feet were just mangled. So with the exception of that last day, um, I felt amazing the whole race, other than my feet. And even that last day, uh, you know, you and I climbed that 700 meters to do that last little flight that didn't end up working out for us. And it took like three hours, which is three times, you know, three times slower than my normal pace. That right. would normally be an hour. So I, clearly I was worked. Yep. Um, but even then I didn't feel physically that bad. Um, you know, the feet thing is something you and I, I don't think really have solved yet. We've talked about that a yeah. lot and we've got yeah. some work to do to figure that out. Uh, you know, some guys in the race were using sandals, you know, on the long walks. That was pretty interesting. You know, anyway, we'll do an update for on the podcast when we figure this out because we thought we had that wired. Totally. Right? My feet were just calloused bricks before the race. And so, but they did go to hell. Um, but the, uh, the recovery. So, you know, Will Gad told me one of the reasons he did not want me to do this race when we did the Rockies Traverse last year. Um, he talked about, you know, six months and really a year, like six months for his feet, but it was like a year before he really recovered. Nate Scales, uh, who was on the last podcast, great podcast, you guys should all listen to that, it was fantastic. Um, he did it in 2007, he was a year. His feet were mangled for a year. Um, other than my blisters, which were like two weeks uh, and my feet looking like hell, um, you know, I didn't feel bad ever. Right. You know, I, I really, you told me not to move for a month when I got home, you know, uh, don't exercise and get almost kind of like out of shape, uh, which was actually really quite nice. And that was kind of a nice thing to do, but, um, I'm not trying to brag. What I'm trying to say is like that, that's remarkable in a number of ways. Um, I, I think, but did we, did we miss anything? Did we mess up? Is that was that your kind of could could you have anticipated that? Uh, no, I, I'll I'll be totally frank. I I thought that you would be in worse shape uh, than you were. Hmm. Um, I, I'm stoked you weren't. Um, I think it's a testament to the work you put in. Um, uh, I think you're obviously a little bit of a, just a genetic freak which is cool hmm. um i think you know i think our ramp ups and ramp downs probably helped a little bit i mean you know you had the ultimate shit fest which was the race uh taking that break i think your body probably went like cool hmm. back i remember this part i can rest and recover i i mean i i, I just don't know you hmm. you turned into a beast and um you know, I can't. I can't say it's not that you didn't go hard because you went balls out um, every time. And uh, you know, for the listeners who didn't know, I was. I was, as he mentioned, I was one of his supporters. So I went up the side of a mountain with Gavin a lot, and he's friggin' fast. I mean, I mean, you were all an ass, and you went hard every moment of every day. And that last day should have torched you for two weeks and it didn't and i think uh i think our training was just good hmm. um would I, you change anything the next time i don't know you know we were talking about that the other night and i think i haven't fully digested it yet um i think when we get closer i'm gonna kind of shove my nose into our 
what we did harder. Um, I don't know. I mean, to me, if like if we could sort out my feet, totally. You know, I'd I'd like to do the exact same program. You were telling me that you were going to change it and move things around. I mean, I for me it was like perfect. Yeah, for me it was like the last. You know, the la- that last night, you know, we started, I landed at like 9 p.m. right on the dot, you know, I had that amazing flight and uh, and basically started jogging for about three hours and then I couldn't jog anymore because my feet were killing me and then walked until whenever we got to pay the next day, 5 p.m. Mm-hmm. or 4 p.m. or mm-hmm. whatever it was, you know, so it was a long, awfully long night and, you know, I was hallucinating that night and I kept thinking that Ferdinand was standing on the side of the road waiting for me and like weird shit went down that night for sure. And then you and I got lost in, in brambles. and That was awesome. That was awesome. That was rad. And, uh, you know, it, it was, I mean, I, I'm not going to sit here and say it was easy. That, that was, you know, but it was, uh, I think it was 110K. Well, it was what we race. said it was going to be. I remember talking to you that night and you're like, what do you think? You know, uh, should I walk or should we wait? Because we had an option to where we could sit tight and there was a launch nearby but once we passed that launch that was it that was it so it was like do we fold or and try and fly tomorrow and come in sexy or do we try to beat this guy right and and i had no opinion to gavin other than if you go it's going to hurt and i think i remember telling him like it's just gonna suck but you can do it and you chose to suck and you did it so i mean it it was exactly what we thought it was gonna be um i yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I guess when I said I would change stuff, I don't mean the the overall thought because I do think it worked. Mm-hmm. I'm just a tinkerer, so yeah, I, I can't give you the same workouts in the same order. That would feel like it'd be like a chef serving the same meal. They just don't do that. Yeah, you just don't do it, right? Um, but uh, I, I don't know. I, I really can't. I would have no good reason to change much of anything because you performed better than I even thought you were going to do and um, and I should mention because we somehow didn't talk about it although it was so key was he had nightly recovery and mobility work uh, and yoga and stretching and um, a lot of tenants that I've learned from um, Kelly Starrett that he now uses and that peace can't be overlooked at how important it was yeah we we i can't believe we didn't talk about that yeah right in the beginning the first week when we started in october ben sent me a list of stuff that i had to get you know a roller bands uh lacrosse ball and kelly starrett's supple leopard i just talked to kelly and did that you guys will all see that here shortly i think that'll be out i had, had a really fun talk with him last week um, but for those of you who don't know, he started San Francisco CrossFit, and uh, he's done a lot of Olympic training. And uh, Kelly's a badass. Saints and, and, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he has a book called uh, Supple Leopard that we used religiously. I took that thing around the world with me for a year um, for mobility and, and keeping my knees good and uh, well, keeping my body good. And mm-hmm. that was remarkable. And it wasn't hard work. That was always 10 or 15 minutes every night. And then we made it a rule. So the Red Bull, in the, in the race, you have to stop at 10.30. You can't move um, unless you pull a night pass. And our our thing always was we'd stop at 10.15, and no matter where I was, and you guys would set up camp somewhere along the road that made sense. But basically 10.15 was our stop point. We always gave it that extra 15 minutes because yep. we thought sleep was 
as are more important than anything else. And so we didn't want to cut into the sleep aspect of it. So yeah, I'd rock up to the van and you'd have my carpet all laid out and all my stuff and hammer that and then hit the sack. Um, so I'll close it on kind of a fun story. Um, the whole way through the race, like literally every day from the time you and I were walking up the Geisberg with, you know, like half an hour after the gun started right. July 5th, we were like, um, let's go ahead and do this again because this is rad. Like it, it yep. was rad. It, we had so much fun and you and Bruce were hysterical and, you know, as you know, I'm writing this book about this whole thing because it was so fun. I, I don't know if I've had that fun doing anything. I don't know if any of us have. I don't think I've ever it had that radical. Much fun. It was yeah. such a fun thing. Um, the one sobering moment uh, that I'm still kind of dealing with, the, the night we got into Monaco and I sat down with Aaron and Guschelbauer and uh, Petio and all the guys that had gotten in before me, um, it was like swapping horror stories and right. stuff you probably used to talk about it more you know the, uh, like everybody had these phenomenally scary stories to tell and moments of during the race and I guess you know I knew that going into it we all did it's the exiles you're going to have some really scary moments it's, but at the time I was kind of like ooh I think this is an unacceptable level of risk and then an hour later, I was like, yeah, I can't wait to do it again. So, so, so anyway, I just wanted to put that out there. So I guess what he's saying is we'll see you in two years for the next edition. Yeah, yeah. It was so awesome. Well, thank you very much. I think that was cool. I hope you all enjoyed that. And uh, if you have any questions, please put them in the blog. Uh, when, when I put this up on the on the Mayhem, uh, there's a place for comments at the bottom. If you got a question for Ben or me about the training, then we're more than happy to to answer them. Uh, Ben's website is thesnowgoat.com. Uh, he's, there's all kinds of valuable information on there, and uh, he's super, as you can tell, super, super into this. And uh, if you're an athlete and you want to get better, uh, go talk to him. I hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. It was always cool. It's always cool sitting down with Ben. He's quite a personality. Uh, that guy is a complete badass. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast or the others, uh, we'd love for you to put us, uh, something out on your social media channels. You know, hit us up on uh, Facebook or Instagram or whatever you like to do. You can certainly find us on all those. I finally got iTunes all figured out, so you can now uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. You'll find all those links on my website. And again, Ben's website, if you're interested, in training or health or any of those things like he talked about uh, you can find him on the snowgoat.com uh, as always uh, in in light of and following the footsteps of uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History one of my favorite podcasts all we ask for is a buck a show that helps keep us on the air um, it's something I'll continue to do we've got a couple of great shows coming up with Josh Cohn and Matt Syndergaard and Will Gadd I keep promising Will Gadd he is a hard dude to pin down but one of these days I promise I will uh, and until the next time Thanks very much. Hope you enjoyed it. See you on the next Cloud Based Mayhem.